Let's go ahead and look at our scripture that can be found on page 4. This is Romans 8, 1 through 14. If you'll remember, I preached on Romans 8, 1 through 4 last week, uh, but uh, I have included it and I'm going to touch on it again because uh, it's, we just need to hear it again and again. So this is Romans 8, 1 through 14. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind is, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The word of the Lord. Well, it's been a busy time in the Rodriguez household. Uh, our uh, son, Will, has graduated and is now uh, out of high school and is a big man. And uh, we'll be going to JMU. So uh, we're excited for him. We've had a lot of festivities. We have family in town. In fact, my mother, my mother-in-law and father-in-law are in town. They're all taking notes, and they will be holding up uh, placards based on my jokes. So uh, we'll see what happens there. But uh, we actually threw a, a party with another person, uh, another one of his uh, student friends, and there was food, and there was laughter. And uh, we've had, I think, 16 guests in our home the last uh, couple of days. And so there's been a lot of food uh, being made. And it's very interesting that I have not been asked to participate in the food preparation, or at least in any sort of substantive. You know, I, I think I did cut three and a half pounds of onions. But uh, in terms of putting together a meal or something, I've not been asked because I'm notoriously bad at following a recipe. A recipe is kind of like a formula, you know, you follow the steps, you do exactly what you're supposed to do, and voila, out, come, out of the oven comes exactly the way it looks like, uh, you know, on that page on the internet. Well, not so with me. Oh, no, I'm more of a Frankenstein of cooking. Strange things come out. I'm not good at following the formula. Now, I want to talk about formulas. Why am I talking about formulas? Because I think sometimes we view Romans 8 and we look at it as a formula. In other words, we're trying to figure out this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible and what it means to live by the Spirit, to live a victorious Christian life, to 
get away from living a sinful life and we sort of list what's going on in there and try to dissect and discern it and follow the steps, follow the formula, so to speak. And yet sometimes we get to the end of the recipe and we find that there has been no change. And we scratch our head and we look at the chapter and say, what did we do wrong? I think the most important thing to recognize in Romans 8 is that the Spirit comes into full view. Indeed, I think the Spirit is mentioned something like 20 times, 21 times in Romans 8, once every two chapters. But the Spirit is not a formula. And Christianity is not mechanistic. Christianity is relating in relationship with the living, breathing God. It was Jesus himself who said that the Spirit, you know, without the Spirit, you can't be born again, and the Spirit blows where it will. The Spirit brings life. But we cannot simply follow Romans 8 like we follow a recipe book. We need to look deeper than that. We need to look at what God is actually saying through this passage. This passage is very important. If you were to sum up Romans 7, I would say that Romans 7 tells us this, that sin is in you, but sin is not you anymore. He's speaking to the Christian. If you've given your heart to Jesus, if you are a disciple, a follower, yes, we still have sin. It's in us, but it's not us. But additionally, Romans 8 tells us that we are simultaneously already in heaven and yet still here. What has come to pass is not fully come yet. That one foot is in heaven and one is in earth. That life is in us, but life is not us. That we need to look to God to bring life into this mortal body as we wait for what is corruptible, my fleshly body, to be swallowed up at the resurrection. Romans 8 is speaking to us about dependence, about looking to, about following a living God, not a formula. Christianity is not a formula. So we must look to Him for life because life is in us, but it's not us. Romans 8, I'm going to cover two specific issues. Number one, the way that God changes us. God is doing a work in us. How is He doing that? We see that God says that He who began a good work will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How is He doing that? What is God's part in how God changes us? And also, number two, what's our part in participating in it? Are we to simply lay back and let God do His thing? Or is God drawing us into a relationship, into a dance, if you will, as in God is shaping and changing our character into the likeness of Christ? Well, let's begin with point number one, how God changes us. A little recap on Romans 7. I summed it up that sin is in us, but sin is no longer us. Paul speaks at the last part of Romans 7 biographically, autobiographically about himself, where he says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh because I desire to do what is right, but I don't seem able to carry it out. For what I don't want to do, I do. But the evil I don't want to do, I, I keep on doing. And he says, if I don't do what I want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that's dwelling in my members, in my flesh. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In other words, in the core of who I am, 
I do love God. I know it. I want to follow him. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of the inner me of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In verse 25, he sums it up, thanks be to God. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind in the inner core of my being, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But immediately in verse 1, he turns to a new tack. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now on the face of that, if we were to take these two verses and stop, there should be a bit of a conundrum. Verse 25, Paul sums up his Christian living. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In other words, I still do wrong. I still do bad. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This flies in the face of what we think religion is all about, right? You only get the prize if you qualify for it. And the qualification is that you have to have your acts together. You have to make it to the top where you no longer live with this sort of struggle, where you no longer fight against sin, where you live a holy and good and righteous life. It's only then that you receive, condemnation, uh, that you receive commendation and not condemnation. Think of one of my good friends who's a Muslim. And I've asked him the question before, how, how good is good enough? How do you know when you've reached the pinnacle of when you are commended by God for living a holy life? And he says, I, I don't know. I will not know until the end of time when my life is judged. So he doesn't know because he understands the way it works is ultimately it has to be perfect in order to get the passing grade. Works that way Forget just religious systems, right? It works that way in the world. It's only the most beautiful that receive the adulation. It's only the successful that climb to the top of the ladder that receive the adulation. It's only the people that have their act together and don't have flaws. I mean, isn't that our entire great neck area that we live in? Heck, everybody's perfect, aren't they? Or at least you better look perfect on the outside because you've got to make the grade. Life is easy. It's fun. We all look beautiful. We're having a great time. But many of us are just faking it. So how does this work? How can it be possible to not receive condemnation and yet at the same time struggle with sin that sometimes gets the better of us? And the answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. For Jesus has done what the law could not do. By dying on a cross, by coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, by dying for our sin and taking it upon his shoulders, the sin that we committed, the sin that we are committing, and the sin that we will commit. He has condemned sin. That there would now no longer be condemnation in us. That there would only, in fact, be commendation for us. Not because of what we do, but because of what he's done. See, what Christianity teaches us is this, that simultaneously you are more wicked than you could ever possibly believe, 
and you are more loved by God than you ever could possibly hope. At the same time, at the same time, you are simultaneously more wicked than you could possibly believe and more loved than you could ever hope. This should profoundly affect how we see ourselves. See, for some of us, we play the game where we refuse to see sin in ourselves. We gloss it over. We whitewash it because we know that if it's there, God surely cannot love us. And so we play the religion shell game, sort of moving sin from one place to the other. For other of us, we've given up playing that game, and so all we ever do is we see sin in everything. We see the fact that we don't measure up. Or sometimes we do good and then we do bad, and up we go and down we go, and we participate in what's called daisy theology. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. But God says, no, I see you exactly where you are right now. And I love you exactly for who you are right now. This should profoundly affect how we see others. For some of us, it's those other people who are evil, right? Some people say it's, you know, they would categorize the political right. It's all of those other people and all of their problems. If they could only get their act together. And then sooner or later, we look in the mirror and we see the profound evil in ourselves. And it wrecks us. For other people, some they call the political left, there's no such thing as evil. It's just the oppression that's occurred to people. It's the social constructs that must be thrown off. Because I can't love evil people. But God can. And if God can, we can love ourselves and we can love other people too. Jesus said something very profound when he was speaking to his disciples in Luke. I think it was 12. He said, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, he's speaking to his disciples who he loves, his friends. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. In other words, disciples, I know where you're at. I know your hearts. And I love you. God is content with who you are and where you are right now. So are you? Have you made peace with the wickedness in your heart? Have you made peace with the Savior who loves you in the midst of of the struggles and failings of your life. You know, the greatest gift that the gospel gives you right now is this, that it's okay to be me. It's okay to be here right now. Because if God loves me, if God is for me, who can be against me? God is content with who we are. But God is not content to leave us where we are. And so God has done something amazing. God has come near to us. Saw a great movie a couple of days ago, The Hunt for the Wilder People. Anybody seen it? It's kind of a cult film. Came out in 2016. You got to see it. Pretty clean, pretty good. It takes place in New Zealand. And uh, there's this woman. Her name is Bella. And Bella has a heart of love. And Bella 
and her, her husband, Hector, take in this kid, Ricky Baker, who has been uh, in the system. He's an orphan. He's a horrible kid. Nobody likes Ricky Baker. Nobody wants Ricky Baker. But Bella, and they live out in the middle of nowhere, New Zealand, takes in Ricky and loves Ricky. In fact, Bella had taken in Hector and loved Hector and married Hector. Hector was actually at a prison record. And uh, that's what Bella does. She draws these people close to them. And it's the story of these guys finding love in the midst of rejection. See, God is content with who we are, but he's not content to leave us who we are or where we are. And so God has moved into our lives. Romans 8 is essentially telling us that the Spirit has moved into our hearts. Notice verse 9 and 10. You, however, meaning Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Many of us read Romans 8, 1 through 10 like it's a formula. But it isn't a prescriptive, it's a description. It's a description of who a Christian is. A Christian is one who has the Spirit of God, not one who gets the Spirit of God and then loses it and gets it and loses it based on how they're behaving. So Paul is saying, you, however, Christian, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And notice how he refers to the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God, and then it becomes the Spirit of Christ, and then it becomes Christ. And actually, then it becomes the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. We have everyone here, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Christ Himself. What does that mean? Who, who's taken up residence in my life? The answer is God is one. And so when one comes, they all come. God is living in my heart. He's taken up residence in my life for good. Much like Bella invited Ricky into his home, God has come into our home. I said that uh, we've had a lot of guests in town. And when you have guests in town, and we've had 13, and we have a great house for entertaining, but it ain't that big, the way it works with guests is, you know, yours is theirs, and theirs is yours. And you work like crazy to get the house ready and everything because you want to present to them the best. You want to show them a good time. You want them to be happy. But you know that they're going to go home at some point. And then you get to collapse and be you again. It's very different when somebody comes to live, isn't it? Anybody had a grandparent come live with you? Or a mother? Or a father? Or a brother? That's a total different situation, isn't it? Because you can only play the host for so long. Now, we're talking a more permanent situation. Things are going to have to change, aren't they? Because a, a room is going to have to be made ready that was for something else. And the way it works is whatever you eat, they eat. They're there, and you're there, and there's no getting around it. Whatever you do, they do. Whatever you watch, they watch. If the toilet's clogged up for you, it's clogged up for them. Your wants are now influenced by their wants. 
God shows up in our life. And he's packed his bags. He's come to stay. And things are going to change. See, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if you are a Christian, He does. So I must change my perspective that whatever it is that I watch, God is watching. Whatever it is that I'm reading, God is reading. Whatever it is that I'm thinking, God is thinking. See, often the way we work with God is when we want God, we bring Him along with us, right? Hop in the car and let's go. And when we don't want Him, we sort of relegate Him to a shelf somewhere. And we'll pick Him up when we want to. But God refuses to live as simply an honored guest. Because you can fake it with a guest. But God doesn't want faking. He wants you. He's come to renovate your house. Now you may be saying, Carlos, man, you're guilt tripping me here. This is pretty heavy stuff. But the power of this is you automatically think that God is like Santa Claus. So often, so do I, right? You better watch out. You better not cry. Santa's watching, and I'm telling you why. He's keeping a list. He's making it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice, and Santa's coming to town. And if he likes what he sees, he's going to give you a gift. But if he doesn't, he's going to keep on going. It's precisely because of God's mercy. It's precisely because God knows everything about you, every single thought that you have. And he loves you anyways. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness and his love that makes me think, do I really want my God watching this with me? Do I really want to go there with him? No, I love him too much. See, the fact that God is indwelling my heart should change everything. He simultaneously accepts me and he lives with me. And slowly but surely, God is molding me and shaping me into his likeness. That's what God is doing. Life is in us, but life is not us. It's him that brings life to our mortal bodies. So this brings me to my second point. How do we participate in this renovation project of our heart? I heard a story about how they, if you're on a ranch, how they uh, bring wild donkeys, how they capture them and bring them back to the ranch. You know, in the beginning, wild donkeys, they're, you can't tame them, right? It's not like a horse where you ride on them and you break them. You can't do that with a wild donkey, so you do it a different way. A wild donkey, if you try to rope it and lasso it and try to bring it, it'll just dig in its heels. You know, that's stubborn as a donkey. That's where it comes from. And so what they do is they take a tame donkey from the ranch out into the wild. They throw a rope around the wild donkey and they throw a rope around the tame donkey and then they leave. Now the tame donkey looks at the wild donkey and says, uh-oh. <laughs> the wild donkey wants nothing to do with the tame donkey and so he starts bucking and going crazy. 
but the tame donkey isn't going anywhere. It can't go anywhere. Sure enough, about four days later, you look out in the distance, there comes two donkeys. The wild one now tame that is submitted to the lead of the other donkey that stood, that stood around, that stuck it out, so to speak, in the midst of the wildness. See, that's what God is doing with the Holy Spirit. He's come into our hearts and he's thrown a lasso around our life and he won't let go. See, I still am in my flesh, not in my flesh, I'm in the spirit, I have the spirit, but I have this thing called the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is my desire to live independent of God. It's my wild donkey. You can't tell me what to do. You can't lead me. I'm my own God. It's my own salvation. I don't need you. Romans 8.5 puts it this way. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh but ca cannot please God. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now the first thing we need to understand is when we see the word mind, we think about its translation in our common parlance. The mind is our thoughts. It's what we think. But back then, in Hebraic and Greek thought, our, the mind is deeper than that. The mind, when he speaks about the mind, he's speaking about the heart and the mind. He's speaking about the core being of who I am. The core affections, if you will, when you sort of peel away all the layers and get to the bottom of what really drives me, of what really, where, who I am and what I want. That is what he's talking about with the mind. We would call it the heart, if you will. It's what I love, what I hunger for, what my heart is set on, so to speak. We use that language. And in the beginning, my heart is set on the flesh. God comes into my life and he ropes himself to me and I see his beauty and I say yes to Jesus Christ. But that flesh is still there. And so begins the process of God shaping me. I have three sons. One is with the Lord. They're all teenage or older. And so a variety of girlfriends have come through the house or are still there. And invariably, breakups will occur. And they are painful things to watch breakups of your kids, right? But it's been interesting to see, in particular with the girlfriends, how different ones have responded. There's been despondency and sadness, but I think of two particular girlfriends. One who was very sad, upset for a while, but got over it. But I think of a different girlfriend who didn't get over it, who maybe still isn't over it. Why could one let go of this relationship what the other one could not let go, would not let go, still holds on? It's because her heart, she set on that relationship. 
We can all identify with that, can't we? We've all set our heart on something that we're not going to let go on. We're in it to the end. See, that relationship preoccupied her, consumed her, even justified her. See, when your mind is set on the flesh, it's set on something, anything other than God for self-salvation. And the scriptures say to us in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now we're in the spirit. So he's not saying if you live this way sometimes, Christian, if you're tempted by that, there goes your salvation. But no, he's saying that you experience a kind of death, if you will, in your life. A kind of death that God doesn't want you to live because you're wandering into the wrong way. I don't know if you saw the movie Chariots of Fire. A picture of two men doing the same thing, but for two different reasons. Remember Harold Abrams? Jewish, pugnacious, brilliant, fast. And he wanted to run. But he wanted to run, if you will, to justify his existence to prove that he belonged to the class that was discriminating against him, that he perceived was holding him back. There's this powerful scene right before the race where he's, he's being massaged and he's saying that I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my entire existence. I've known the fear of losing. And now I'm almost too afraid to win. But then there was Eric Little, who loved the Lord, a child of missionary parents. He actually died in China in an internment camp being a missionary during World War II. And there's this picture of chariots of fire. In fact, they only show it a couple of times. The reality is every time Eric Little ran, he ran with his face pointed toward the sky. It was the most ungainly thing you've ever seen. And they said when he ran, that the reason he ran that way is because his eyes were on God. And there's a beautiful scene where Eric speaks to his sister and says that I believe that God has made me for his work and to be a missionary, but God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In other words, my heart is set on the things of God. And the Spirit has given me life. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? It's very mystical in some ways. Even the old translation, right? The Holy Ghost, that doesn't really help us. We simply treat the Holy Spirit as some battery or magic power that kicks into gear and drives us to the successful Christian life. We've missed it. Because the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to Jesus Christ. To show us the beauty and majesty of the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to go to the Holy Spirit and say to him in these areas of our life, this is what it means to set our heart on the Spirit. Come into this place in my heart and put it in its right place. There's a beautiful scene, uh, scripture in John 14, says, I'm, where Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away. And it's for your good that I'm going away because when I go away, I will send to you the helper, 
the Holy Spirit, who will make known to you and remind you of all the things that I've said to you. And so when we set our hearts on the Spirit, our mind on the Spirit, we're saying to the Spirit, help me to remember that you are what I'm looking for, that you are the way, the truth, and the life in this relationship, at this workplace, while giving this sermon. Come into my life and put it in its right place because we can't. You want to know the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8? Romans 7, there's no Holy Spirit. Right? Paul is saying, I want to do right, but I can't do right. Because what's missing is the power of the Holy Spirit to change and move our hearts. So Romans 8 is showing us trust in the Lord. Call out to Him. Ask Him, Holy Spirit, I need you. It's dependence and faith and trust in a living God. How does He do it? I don't know. In what way, what manner, what time? I don't know. I can't give you a formula. I can only tell you that the Holy Spirit's living in your life and wants to show you the beauty of Christ, wants to set your mind, your heart, your life on the right things and will lead you as you depend on Him. You have to take the step of seeking out the Spirit. Verse 11 says, For if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So when you are struggling in whatever aspect, when you need the Holy Spirit to come into this area of your life, call out to the Lord. Show me how you're so much better. In that illustration I gave of the two girlfriends, the girlfriend who had put all of her heart into this area simply needs to call out to the Lord, Lord, show me how you're so much more beautiful. And to rehearse in the scriptures the ways in which God has shown that yes, indeed, I am what you are looking for. See, life is in us, but life is not us. We're still in the flesh. And so we must recognize that he's in us. Recognize that he loves us. Pray and turn in dependence onto him. And look to him to bring life into your life. I wish I could give you a magic formula. No, I don't. I'll give you something better than that. God has roped himself to you. And he's not letting go. And the Holy Spirit is that magical rope that ties me to God and that slowly teaches me that his path is the way. And as I walk and follow and submit, God leads me in the path of life. And although sometimes it seems like my entire life is falling apart, and though outwardly I'm wasting away, Yet inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. The Spirit is in the business of resurrection. He's resurrected our inheritance. He's resurrected our future. He's resurrected my spirit. Let Him resurrect my life and how I live. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all ways. He'll make your path straight. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that though we are more wicked and sinful than we can ever imagine, Your love is greater and more unconditional. And that You have come into our life and taken up residence and You will not let go. Father, let me submit to the cords of your faithfulness, the cords of your love. Let me rehearse by the power of your Holy Spirit the truth that you are far better a Savior than my money, than my time, than my relationships, than my faults, than my dreams. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.